0: Well, if you're new, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors, and we're really glad to have you here. Let me explain what we're doing as we transition into our our teaching time. We're in the gospel of John. We have been for a considerable amount of time, about a year and a half. We're, We're on... Kind of the final push. We're going to finish up the Gospel of John in the month of May. And I'm excited here in the next few weeks to tell you about some upcoming sermon series that we've got. Some really cool things. It's been a while since I've had to think of what we would preach besides the Gospel of John. So that's been kind of fun. But right now in John's Gospel— We're in this section, chapters 14 through 17, which is called the the upper room, the upper room discourse. It's a conversation between Jesus and his disciples on his last night before his crucifixion. And, And what we've decided to do is rather than just kind of marching straight through the upper room, we've been looking at different themes because... How many of you know, we, we kind of see throughout these chapters, these same themes come up over and over and over again. So today, I'll invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 14. We're going to be in 14, 15, 16, 17. So you can kind of keep your Bible open to that. And I'm going to invite Natalie, uh, plus one, to come and read our scripture for us here this morning. So Natalie, go ahead.
1: Good morning. This is God's word from John chapter 14. and not to the world jesus answered him if anyone loves me he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine but the father's who sent me
0: amen thank you church do you pray with me god we want to bring our hearts to you today I want to bring our hearts before you that you would speak to us and you would send your spirit now to bring the words of the scriptures to life in our hearts and in our minds. God, I pray that you would help us whatever barriers might come up in our hearts or in our minds today. I pray that those barriers would fall down so that we could experience the richness of your grace. And God, I pray for myself that You would guard and guide my words, that I would only teach that which is truthful and is helpful to build us up. And Jesus, we pray that our focus and our attention would be on You, for it's in Your name we pray. Amen. You know, as we as we look at this upper room discourse, I me to grab my water; left it sitting over here. Uh, I'll be honest with you; I uh, not particularly excited or enthralled about preaching a sermon around the theme of obedience. Uh, how many of you would agree with me that words like obey or submit or keep my commandments, those are not generally thought of as favorable words or phrases in our culture. Amen? Like we're, we're a nation, the United States of America, that was built on Revolution. No, King George, I will not do what you say. And I'm going to throw some tea into the harbor to prove to you. Like that's, that's in our blood. It's in our DNA. And, and you start dropping words like obey and submit. The skeptic in all of us, myself included, wants to say like, yeah, all right, here we go. Another preacher just telling us to obey and to do what the Bible says. Uh, so I just want to confess, if you have any resistance in your heart, I'm kind of there with you. Of all of the ideas to preach conceptually, themes to pull out of this section, this is one that causes me a little bit of fear and nervousness. But the fact of the matter is you cannot ignore in John chapters 14 through 17, just how much these ideas come up. I'll read you these verses, but you're going to see like it's, this was one of the very first concepts or ideas where I said, hey, we need to approach the upper room a little bit differently. We need to go topic by topic because this obey, keep my commands comes up over and over again. Chapter 14, verse 15, which you just heard in our scripture reading. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, Jesus says. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verses 23 and 24, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. You skip ahead to chapter 15 beyond where our scripture reading went today. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. 15 verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. You might remember that from, uh, from previous sermon. I said, hey, I'm punting on it right now. I will come back to it. Well, I'm coming back to it today. And then all the way in chapter 17 verse 6, when Jesus is praying, he prays to the Father. He says, Father, I've shown your name. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Keeping the word keeping the commandments, submitting to the will of Jesus, obeying. You ready for this? Are you tentative? You nervous? I have good news for you. I promise. But let's start with a little bit of the bad news. Why don't we obey? Why don't we obey? The first and most fundamental, maybe the easiest one to point to is just simply our pride. We're prideful. We're prideful. Can I get an amen from anybody? Can I get an ouch? Can I get an ouch from anybody? All right. Uh, We're prideful. We hear rules. We hear commandments. We hear teachings. We hear instructions. And if you're anything like me, I'm just going to reveal the depths of my pride here in front of everybody, which is probably not a great idea, but here it goes. Uh, You hear a rule. You hear a commandment and you think, well, yeah, that's probably good for everybody else, not for me. And here's why. Anybody with me? nowhere was this on more full display for me personally than during our recent Seattle snowmageddon. I grew up in Alaska, and I can tell you with like all of the confidence, which I have a lot of confidence, but all the confidence I can muster that the kids in Alaska would not have missed one hour of school for such a snowfall as we, as we I was living at like an eye roll level 10, like just keeping all of my sinful thoughts and wicked you know, judgments in my heart. But, he, but but then I would read things like on, on Twitter or on social media and it would be like, the Washington State Department of Transportation like, roads are really bad. Don't go out today. And do you know what that spurred within my wicked and sinful, prideful heart? Oh, I'm going out today. Like... We're hitting the road. I am not joking. I left my house every single day and drove around just like, yeah, what now? And then there was like a couple times where I'm like, I should not have left my house today because the roads were really bad. And I should have probably listened to the advice of the Washington State Department of Transportation. The point being, I'm prideful, okay? Okay. And when I hear rules, and and maybe you're kind of like that as well, you hear rules or commandments or instruction, you think to yourself, yeah, well, here's a reason why I don't need to. That is as fundamental to fallen human nature as the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, our first parents, the Lord said, you can eat from any tree in the garden. Hey, just not this one. I want to put this here so that you will trust me and you will submit to me. That's the whole, why, why else would God put a, a tree like that in the garden? You can do anything. All the other trees, they're all beautiful to look at and good for food, but not this one. And that fundamental lie is that somehow God is holding out on us and, and, and I know better than God and, and, and Eve and Adam and they, they, they saw that it was going to make them like God when we're already created in the image and likeness of God. Any prideful people here today? Okay, but there's more to it than just that because sometimes people don't obey Jesus because they have been injured or wounded by people in places of authority. You don't need to raise your hand on this, but but how many times has someone been hurt by someone in a position of authority, someone in a position of power or leadership? Power and authority are not bad things. Power and authority, God himself is very powerful and he has all authority in heaven and on earth. But how many of you know that power and authority can often be misused or abused and the ramifications can be disastrous? A parent was harmful to you. A teacher was harmful to you. A government official was harmful to you. A pastor or a church leader was harmful to you. But the problem is then sometimes we take that injury, we take that wounding, and because of that real pain and that real wounding, when Jesus comes in with an authoritative word that we need to follow, it touches on that same raw nerve. And so we neglect to obey Jesus because of woundings that we've experienced at the hands of someone else in leadership. You know what I'm talking about. you tracking with me. And there's yet even one more reason, I think, sometimes why we don't obey. Yes, pride, sometimes wounding, but also just ignorance. Some people don't obey Jesus because they don't know what Jesus wants. And some of you, maybe you're, you're new to the faith. You've only recently become a Christian. Some of you, maybe you, you were raised as a Christian, but you just never really like opened the scriptures and looked at what Jesus taught and what, what God requires of us. And, and maybe, maybe for some of you, you've been willfully ignorant. You know that there are things that you should do and you ought to do, but you just kind of remain ignorant, which loops us all the way back around to pride, and we've come full circle, Okay. Some of you are sitting here thinking, wow, I'm all three. (laughs) Welcome to the club of people who are in desperate need of God's grace each and every day. Amen? So I want to do something today. I've got some points I want to make. I didn't even number them. I don't know how many I have. But I want to (laughs) share. That's weird for me to say. But I have some thoughts I want to share with you. And I just want to invite you to kind of just slowly chew on these thoughts as I share them with you, okay? The first one is this. Simply put, there is a connection between love and action. There's a connection between love and action. We saw this in our scripture reading. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I say that because the default mode for most of us in, in American culture for about the last 50, maybe 60 years or so, since the, the, you know, the sexual revolution and the summer of love in the 60s and all that, we've bought into a mentality that love is pretty much just a feeling. Love is a feeling of desire. Love is a feeling of affection. Love is a feeling, something that makes me feel good, something that I I do. Love is, is something like that. But as the great American theologians Boston once said— Love is more than a feeling, right? Actually, can I tell you something? I googled the lyrics to that song this week because I didn't really know them very well. I, you know, I love to hit that high note like everybody does, but I, I didn't really know the words that well, and I read through it. And he says more than a feeling. Do you know those stupid lyrics are nothing but feelings? It's like just feeling after feeling after emotion. More than a feeling. I'm like, bro, where's the action? Because there are these other theologians, DC Talk, back in the 90s, and all the youth group kids are going to know that love is a verb, Right? Somebody commiserate with me, please. Come on. You you youth group kids, you are like shrinking back into your chairs. Like join with me, okay? We're shame free in Christ. It's okay. Listen. If you tell somebody that you love them and you express your, your deepest affection and your deepest desires, but then you continually do things that cause them pain and and hardship, or you just don't do anything, you don't don't take action to really benefit them, do you actually love that person? That's true in romantic relationships. It's true in friendships. It's true if, if a parent says, oh, I just love my kid, I love my kid, but then neglects them or abuses them. Is that really love? We know this to be true, that love requires action. There's a linkage there. Why would it not be the case with Jesus, that if, if there's to be love, there is to be action. The second thought, and this is, this is really some of the best news that relationship with God does not start with our obedience. I remember having a conversation with somebody once and I said, well, you know, we were talking and there was some God talk and there was some, you know, Bible talk. I said, well, oh, are are you a Christian? And they said to me, "Well, I try." And on the one hand, I thought, "Okay, that's good. I'm glad they're trying. I'm glad they're, you know, humble about you know, I'm not perfect or whatever." But on the other hand, I thought, "What a what a what a sad thing that is!" Because to be a Christian is to be in relationship with God. You're either in relationship with God or not through what Jesus has done. We don't try to be Christian. That's that's a mentality of works. That's a mentality that says, I have to meet some bar in order to have relationship with God. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that relationship with God does not start with our obedience. It starts with Jesus' obedience. How many of you know that Jesus was perfectly obedient? John 14, 28, where Jesus says, the father is greater than I. And what an interesting thought, because all throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has been saying, the Father and I are one. If you see me, you've seen the Father. I do what the Father would do. I speak what he would say. He loves me. I love him. I glorify him. There's like all this, you know, equivalency between he and the Father. But then Jesus says, in the dynamics of the relationship of the Trinity, which is just mind-blowing if you think about it too much, but the Son of God, Jesus, has chosen to take a role of submission and deference to the Father's will. Jesus is fully God. He is equivalent with God. He is of the same substance of God, the creeds tell us. And yet, in the economy, in the relationships of the Godhead, Jesus says, I am going to take a place of humility in service of the Father's will. Jesus said in John chapter 6, I do as the Father commands me. Isn't that amazing? What did the father command Jesus to do? To be obedient, the book of Philippians tells us, even to death on a cross. And if I can go outside of the gospel of John just for a moment in the book of Romans, the apostle Paul says, just like the sin of one man made us all fallen into sin, so the obedience, he uses the word obedience, of one man, Jesus, makes the many righteous. You are not given right standing before God because of your obedience, but because of Christ's obedience. Amen. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the good news of the gospel. And by the way, Jesus' obedience was a loving obedience. Not only does Jesus love the Father, but Jesus loved us. His obedience to the Father was motivated by love. Love for the Father, but love for us. You might remember in John 15, we've looked at this before. We actually just sang about it a minute ago, but Jesus said, I did not, you did not choose me, but I have chosen you. And sometimes that can really grate on us. Again, when we're in that prideful place of self-determination, how can you say that, Jesus, that, that I didn't choose you and you're taking my free will away from me? And, and those sorts of objections can come up. I remember having a conversation with someone from the church. We were talking about that song in this verse. And they said to me, oh, those, those verses don't bother me because I view it as like romance. Like to be to be chosen, to be loved, to be wanted, to be desired is a very Romantic and a very beautiful thing, <laughs> like the the um, the uh, you know, like the old note passing thing. Like, do you love me? Check yes or no. Here, pass it on. Right? Did anybody ever do that? Raise your hand. Be honest. anybody ever do that? Okay, I did that uh, in sixth grade. I was trying to be charming way too early, and uh, I passed a note to this girl, and her response was to walk over and dump. Crystal Pepsi on me, which is a very 90s thing to say, right? But the the bad part of it was there was rejection. The good part of it was if you're going to pour soda pop on someone, Crystal Pepsi doesn't leave a stain. So that was nice. Uh, But just my heart, my poor little, you know, middle school heart was broken and rejected. This girl didn't, didn't respond. She didn't choose me. We want to be chosen, don't we? We want to be loved, And so when Jesus says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you, that's an expression of love. And if I could again jump out of John over to 1 John for a moment, the same apostle who wrote this gospel, he tells us, we love because he first loved us. When you look at the cross, we talk about the cross, we sing about the cross, we talk about the empty tomb. When you look at that, what you are seeing is, is Jesus' love and obedience on full display. That you, if you're going to have relationship with God, if you're going to have right standing before God, it's not going to come through your own obedience. It's not going to come through how much you love God. It's going to come through how much Jesus loved and obeyed the Father and how much he has loved and chosen us. I'll say it right now, and I'm, I'll just tell you right now, I'm going to be obnoxious throughout this sermon. I'm, Every sermon, but I'm going to be obnoxious in this sermon because it's so easy to preach or to hear a sermon on obedience and you walk away with the message of, well, I just got to buckle down and obey more. You do. I'm going to get there in a minute. But first and foremost, this is about Jesus' perfect obedience. Friends, did Jesus ever sin? Did Jesus ever violate the will of the Father? Did Jesus 100% fulfill the law? Did Jesus do every single thing that righteousness required on our behalf? Then praise God. It's not about our obedience. It's about his obedience. And that's our only hope. If we are to actually learn how to walk in true obedience. We look at the cross. Third thought is this. Because of that, Christians are called to keep Jesus' word and commandments. Now, this is going to be a little bit of a, an odd quote. I'm going to read you a quote from a guy named D.A. Carson. And I, I love his commentary on John. And I read this quote and I thought to myself, this is super confusing, but there's a thought in there that I really like. So I'm going to read it to you and then we're going to talk about the thought. I'm going to try to explain it my best. If you can keep up, good. I had to chew on it like three different times, uh, come back to it throughout the week. But I want to read this to you because there's something really cool here for us. D.A. Carson says, the parallels that tie together what I command, commands, and my teaching and my words suggest to some that more is at stake than Jesus' ethical commands. What the one who loves Jesus will observe is not simply an array of discrete ethical injunctions, but the entire revelation from the Father, revelation holistically conceived. Nevertheless, the plural form, commands, and to lie, likely focus on the individual components of Jesus' requirements, while the whole singular teaching, logos, focus on the Christ revelation as a comprehensive whole. Y'all tracking with me? Hmm. I chewed on this for a while and it it really, it struck me because, you know, if you think back to that list I was just reading, you notice that sometimes Jesus says you need to keep my word and other times he says you need to keep my commands. And what Carson is telling us is those are two distinct yet interrelated things. We keep Jesus' word, the logos. And you think about this, Jesus is the word. So when we keep the word, what that, you could almost translate that as we are responding to the message of Jesus himself. Who is Jesus? Who is he? He's the son of God. He's the Messiah. What did he come to do? To die, to rise again, to give us salvation. Look at look at places like uh, John 14, 23. It says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Look at that language, like we're gonna come and we're gonna live together. I think this is like salvation language. Keeping his word means we respond to the gospel message. Or in 17.6, when he's praying, he says, Father, I've, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Friends, this is about the gospel. This is about the gospel. The gospel is news to be received not a commandment necessarily to be obeyed. Let me me put it to you this way. I I don't want this to be like Sound City is better than other churches, but I just want you to understand something that motivates and drives myself, our elder team, why we do what we do. We we would consider ourselves a gospel-centered church Which means when you come on a Sunday, you're going to hear songs, you're going to hear preaching that revolves around the cross and the empty tomb. Because there's good news to be received. And you can go to other churches and you can hear teaching that is biblical. You can hear teaching that is inspirational. I'm not against inspirational teaching. I would like you to be inspired. But you can hear teachings as biblical, inspirational, maybe good, wise, biblical principles. But if Jesus didn't die and rise again, wouldn't make a difference to that sermon. I don't want to be throwing rocks. I'm not trying to put other churches down. I just want you to understand the motivation of why we talk about the cross. If the cross didn't happen, if the tomb isn't empty, then yeah, sure. You know, Ted talks for Jesus. Let's go. But if there's good news to be received, if Jesus actually did something on our behalf, then we need to hear that before we talk about The commandments that we're supposed to follow. And Jesus does tell us commandments that we should follow. Uh, John 14, 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Okay. So Jesus' words and Jesus' commands. Gospel centrality. And then from that, we talk about obeying Jesus. Here's why this is important. Two things. Number one, some of you are trying to obey Jesus' commands, but you have never responded to the gospel. You've never bowed your knee and said, Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for rising again. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. I give you my life. And you're trying to live a moral, ethical, commandment-keeping life that is not empowered by Jesus himself because you've never responded to Jesus' word, the gospel others of you, you have responded to the gospel. You said, yes, Jesus, I give my life to you. I want you to be my Lord and my savior. But then you're walking in disobedience because you're ignoring the commandments that then flow out of the gospel. Here's how I'll say it to you. Partial obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. We need to respond to the totality of what Jesus brings to us. The message of himself and then the commands that flow out of that. How many of you know that? For those of you who are parents, I mean, this is an easy one, right? You have one, two, three instructions. Hey, I need you to do this, this bundle of things that all work together. And you go upstairs and the kids have done one of them. And you're like, you didn't do what I asked. Like, I absolutely did. You asked me to do this thing. I'm like, yeah, but I asked you to do these other two things. Like, well, I did the one thing. And then you're like, grr. And then they're like, you never loved me. And then, I'm just kidding. It, just, it gets dramatic quickly, right? How many of you know that as we age... We get a little bit sophisticated, get a little bit more maybe charming feeling, but we still do the same thing to God. Anybody with me? Partial obedience is disobedience. Christians keep Jesus' word and his commands. Next thought to chew on. True obedience is motivated by love and joy. You remember what Jesus was saying? The, the, the love that motivated him. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. John 15, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this that, that you lay down your life for a friend. This Jesus talking about his own motivation. Why would Jesus come to save us? Why would Jesus come to redeem us? Anybody ever had this experience? Again, not to pick on you know, kids and parenting. Maybe it's a, an employee. You're a, you're a boss. You're a supervisor at your work. And you give an instruction. You give some sort of commandment. And what's met with is, okay. And then you kind of, and they do it, and it. But is it like joy-filled and happy? Like, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? I, I, other people's kids, I've heard of this happening, right? But let me, let me tell you something. God is not after your begrudging, half-hearted, joyless obedience. That does not really bring him the glory that he deserves nor desires. What God is after is for us to be astonished and delighted by the message of grace, the, the gift of the Son of God, his life for us, his punishment in our place, that we would be so delighted by that we say, How could I do anything but respond with with love and with, with joy? The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus says, for the joy that was set before him went to the cross. That when the father said that, Redemption would take place through the crucifixion of the Son of God that Jesus did not go, oh, well, I guess if I have to. But Jesus said, yes, I love you, my Father. And I love these people. And it's a joy and it's a delight to do your will. Real motiv- real obedience is motivated like that. And, and let me say this. If you find yourself bumping up against a commandment of God and you say, I don't really want to do this, it's probably better to obey even if your deepest motivation is not really love and joy. <laughs> just, I would just encourage just, yeah, obey. But I don't want you to think that that should be normative for the Christian life. What my hope and my desire, what Jesus' hope and desire for us is that we would just be blown away. God, how could you have loved me this much and how could I want to do anything other then respond to you with my, my actions, with acts of love, with acts of obedience. God doesn't want begrudging, beaten into submission children. He wants children who understand the depth of his mercy and grace and respond with love and obedience themselves, which ties me to my last thought, which is this, true obedience leads to love and joy. True obedience leads to love and joy. That when we understand what God has done for us and we respond with, with obedience, how, how could we have anything else other than joy as a, res, as a result of that? I have spent far too much time as a pastor meeting with people, talking with people, even in my own life, just as a disciple of Jesus, where we pursue something that we thought would bring us joy apart from Christ, and it ended in tragedy and disaster. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody tracking with me on this? Oh, I wanted joy from this thing. I wanted to feel loved by this person. I, I pursued something outside of Christ, outside of obedience to his commands. and actually what we were left with was not joy. What was left with was, was heartache. Jesus wouldn't command anything that didn't lead to our joy. I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts it in, in mere Christianity. He, he, He puts it this way. He says, God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. Kind of a crude example, but just go with it. A car is made to run on petrol. That's something British. I don't know what it is. And it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion or without following his way. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. Do you really believe that God is interested in your joy? I'll give you one example that comes to mind for me. You know, these last few weeks, we've been announcing the Financial Peace University class and and uh, it starts later this week and we've been announcing it and I'm, I'm not a, a betting man because that would violate Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University principles. But if I were a betting man, I would put, Money on the fact that there have been some people, more than one, who have heard those announcements and have thought, boy, I'm really struggling with money. And money is a burden to me, and I know I'm not doing things the right way, and I know I'm being, you know, frivolous, I'm not being generous, I'm not practicing good stewardship, I'm not saving, I'm not doing things with my money God's way, maybe I should sign up for that class, but you haven't signed up for that class because taking that step of obedience feels too hard. If I was to sign up for that class, they're going to start messing with me, and I'm going to have to make changes, and I'm going to have to do different things, and I can't. And and so we're 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 living in this place where money is like this weight and this. Burden and it's robbing you of joy because you're not walking in obedience to what God says. That's just one example. Money, relationships, food, your schedule, your work, your, your romantic relationships, whatever it might be. There are so many places in our lives where we try to walk in ways apart from God's best for us. And then we wonder why we're missing out on joy. C.S. Lewis also said, I can only quote C.S. Lewis one time officially, so I left it off the slides, but C.S. Lewis said, joy is the serious business of heaven that God delights in seeing you enthralled with him and living the life that he has for you. And when you understand his obedience and his love, you'll respond with love and obedience. And what comes on the other side of that is more love and more joy. This is good news, friends, but it's hard. Apostle Paul calls it dying to yourself. It's a good metaphor because sometimes to walk in obedience means dying to yourself, dying to what you think will bring you the most joy and trusting that even if it feels counterintuitive, that what Jesus has for you is actually your very best. So how do we grow in obedience? It wouldn't be an Aaron Grace sermon if I didn't have at least one numbered list in here. So three things, Okay. For those of you who are prideful, for those of you who identified with that more prideful side of things, I'm going to invite you to set aside some dedicated time in prayer. To really seek the face of the Lord and go before him in prayer. And I know there's probably at least somebody here thinking like, well, wait a minute, why wouldn't you tell them to go to the scriptures and be humbled by the word of God? Because prideful people can sometimes go to the scriptures and be like, yeah, boom, nailed it, got it. So don't do that. Let's go to prayer. I want you to like, as an example, lay on your face in your living room. God, I am, I am so prideful. I think I know better than you. I think I know what will lead to my own joy better than you sometimes. Would you forgive me? And would you humble me? And would you help me? For those of you who have been hurt or wounded, my heart breaks for you My prayer is that Sound City would be the kind of church where you could experience his grace and his healing. But I want to encourage you towards the idea of counsel. And maybe that's like official counseling, with a trained counselor. Maybe it's meeting with a pastor. Maybe it's meeting with, you know, a leader in the church. Just friends or community that you can talk to. I want to obey Jesus, but there's this fear that I'll be hurt or taken advantage of again. The only way to take steps toward healing is by bringing that Injury out into the light and letting other people walk with you and and care for you in that. For those of you who confess, yeah, I'm just kind of ignorant. I don't really know what the Bible teaches. Then I want to commend you to study. We live in the most blessed age in terms of access, I just listened to a podcast this last week that was talking about the um, the advent of the printing press and how the printing press came around right at the same time as Martin Luther and the whole Protestant Reformation, how the Bible exploded and how technology made the Bible explode, and just it was an incredible providential thing that God did. We're living in the middle of another one of those revolutions like that. The internet is obviously it's all its dark side and its dark corners and you know, fighting on Facebook or whatever, but like you can have, I have a hundred translations of the Bible in my pocket at all times of the day. And I've got audio Bibles and I've got sermons I can access and blogs. And there's no excuse for ignorance if you want to commit yourself to it. And if you don't know what to listen to, just ask. I'd love to make some recommendations or some things to study or some things to learn. And, and here's, the, here's the point again, I hope I've been obnoxious. I hope I will continue to be obnoxious because I want you to, in all of these things, keep Jesus' obedience at the center. If you're prideful, I want you to remember that Jesus, like the book of Philippians tells us that though he was in the very form of God, he humbled himself and became a servant, obedient, even to the point of death on a cross. Next time you're feeling like, well, that doesn't apply to me, or I'm too good for that. Just remember, Jesus was too good for the cross, and yet he took our place. If you're hurt or you're wounded, remember Jesus' obedience on the cross, because Says that by his wounds we are healed. It's in the cross of Jesus where you can see that he's the type of king who can be trusted. And if you're someone who's ignorant, come to Jesus expecting that his promise is true. What did Jesus say? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavily burdened, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, he says. I'm humble and lowly of heart my yoke is easy, my burden is light. So come to Jesus and learn. Let him teach you. In his humility in his submission to the Father in his perfect obedience and love if you hear nothing else that I said today let Jesus obedience be what fuels yours. God I ask that this would be true in our lives. God I pray For my brothers and my sisters here, God, where we are even prone to despair after hearing a message or a teaching like this on obedience, God, I pray that you'd help us to remember that it is always first and foremost about Jesus' obedience. As we come to the Lord's table now and and celebrate the the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, may we repent for our disobedience and, and remember that it's your perfect obedience that enables us to come to you. Be with us now as we celebrate and as we sing and draw us to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.